0: Well, it's uh, been quite an extraordinary week, hasn't it? Uh, The news is well littered with Brexit chaos and all the commentary around that. We've had leadership challenges and lengthy debates about the leadership challenges and then amendments to the debates and then amendments to the amendments to the debates on the leadership challenges. And I'm not going to make any political statements, but did you see in the middle of all of this kind of political wrangling, a man stood up and he delivered what is been described as probably just a barnstorming speech I think one headline said you know a career changing speech Michael Gove is his name I'm sure many of you saw it and he spoke in parliament for nine minutes defending the government against this vote of no confidence and as a piece just of, of just pure speech or oratory I mean it was it was amazing it was breathtaking Uh, commentators from all the political sides couldn't help but praise his skill it's a seriously impressive kind of nine minutes he absolutely crushed his opponents he was quick-witted he got all these facts straight off the top of his head and he grabbed the attention of everyone whatever side they were on now politics politics aside this was a first-rate piece of political public speaking and Mr Gove has done himself a lot of favours, I guess, yeah, by doing that. But whether we, we look to the world of politics or we look to the world of business or, or media, there are many people that we can look at, aren't there, who, who we kind of think, well, they're really, really impressive. Whether that's on television or whether that's you know, in your workplace. You look at them and you go, wow. The question is, do we try and import their methods and practices into the local church now there's much of course that can be transferred good practices and good methods can be learned and transferred both ways but should leadership within the political and the business world dictate leadership within the local church and how we teach Well, that's kind of the background question to much of these end chapters within 2 Corinthians. Paul is writing probably now, actually I I did this a lot last week, but probably for the fourth time. Though it says 2 Corinthians, this is probably 4 Corinthians, but we don't have two of the letters. So Paul is writing now probably for the fourth time to this young church, which he has established in this town, which has really exploded as a commercial and a cultural centre. A bit of history, just for one second. Corinth had been utterly destroyed by the Romans as they took over that part of the Greco-Roman Empire in 146 uh, BC. They flattened it, but they then, in what Roman wisdom, rebuilt it in 44 BC, and it became the kind of capital city for that whole area. We're talking southern Greece, the Isthmian area the bottom there, and it was known by this time as. Neo-Corinth, new or new wealthy Corinth, as it was commonly known. And Paul is writing to a church which he has established in this place. He loves this church. He'd been going for about five years. And he long, he's longing for them in his letters to remain faithful to Christ. But we've seen, as after leaving Corinth, Paul had received news. From various some of his envoys uh, that a group of teachers had come into the church in Corinth and they were dismissing Paul's teaching and they more importantly they were undermining his authority now the problem was these these teachers were in a sense they were more Corinthian than they were Christian. That is, they were importing what mattered to the culture of Corinth. They were importing that into the church and the practices of the church and the teaching of the church. They were doing that more than they they were exporting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we know from what Paul has said before that these leaders were prone to teaching about the blessings that were to be expected in heaven. They were saying, oh, we've got everything now. Thank you very much. They've got all the blessings in the present life. We call that something, over-realised eschatology. But don't worry about that. What we're saying is that actually they're, so they're over-realising, they're over-promising the blessings that, that should be for heaven. If They're saying that they happen now. Paul has sarcastically mocked their teaching in his previous lesson in 1 Corinthians. If you want to look at it or make a note of it, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 8 this is sarcastic, okay? He says, this is Paul to these, about these teachers. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've, become, you've begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. You can hear his sound sarcastic tone about these teachers. And then he goes on in verse 10 of that chapter. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise. We are weak, but you are so strong. You are honoured and uh, and we are dishonoured. Do you see the sarcastic tone about these teachers? These teachers had had observed Paul who on the face of it, yeah, he might look kind of weak and unimpressive. And they kind of walked into Corinth and said, ah, you want to write him off? More than that, they suggested that Paul, because of his, let's say, appearance, was lacking spiritually, as a leader particularly. It feels, uh, uh, in, in how Paul responds to them, that they, they had been looking down their noses at Paul with this kind of patronising air of superiority, so much so that Paul has spent much of this letter to Corinthians that we're looking at, defending himself, defending his ministry and the gospel of Christ that he proclaimed. Now, oh, these teachers who walked into Corinth, they valued all this eloquence in speeches, the, presence, the gravitas of a person. They came with these letters of recommendation as well. And it also seemed that they, they measured the quality of a speaker by the amount that they were paid. And for all these things they valued, Paul displayed very few of them. And so Paul is having to defend himself, particularly his authority as an apostle of Jesus. So what we're going to see, we're going to see how he does that, and also more importantly, why he does that. And I hope that we'll we'll see how that applies to us today. So first point on your sheets, Paul is defending his authority. Have a look down if you can at verse 7, you'll see there he begins, uh, pretty strong words, he doesn't hold back. You are judging by appearances. He's warning the church here, hopefully with the other leaders listening in too. Now, this little phrase, it's actually very difficult to translate because of the the voice in in which it comes. Uh, But Paul is literally saying to the Corinthian church here, see what's before your face. That's what he's literally saying there. We might say, what's right in front of your eyes? What's plain and obvious? What's the evidence before you? He's saying to them, don't look at what these teachers say you should look at. Uh, You know, just, just the outward appearance. He's saying, look at the evidence, look at the facts. And what were they? Paul continues, if anyone is confident they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we, Paul, belongs to Christ, just as much as they do. See, Paul wants the church, uh, for what all these teachers are saying, he wants them to say, realise he belongs to Christ, just as much as kind of putting it tamely here, much more now, they could be accusing Paul of not being a Christian. Therefore, Paul is saying here, I'm a Christian too. I think because of the context. Actually, I think what Paul is suggesting is that he's saying he belongs to Christ as an apostle of Christ, chosen and empowered by Jesus. His rivals are saying the same. But they seem to be, they seem to be implying that they belong to Jesus in some kind of special way. Paul will speak more about that in a couple of chapters they were looking down at Paul, and suggesting, you know, implying that he was somewhat inadequate for the task. I don't know about you. Have you ever felt with that, like that, with people? Maybe friends. I've got a bunch of friends here, you know, Christians, and they, they, everything they say, and particularly the way they say it, implies that, yeah, I understand you're a Christian, but you're lacking in some way. So this patronising air of superiority—that you need to experience uh, what they've experienced, or have some particular spiritual gift that they have. These teachers seem to suggest, as we'll see more in chapter twelve, that they—they have various kind of gifts that they would you know, kind of display for everyone to see, particularly in dreams and visions. they are suggesting that's the pinnacle of a Christian leader. Now, you truly belong to Jesus if you had pictures or dreams now it's important to recognize and I had a few comments from last week and I thought it'd be good to have a little kind of aside here it is important to recognize that God does and can use all sorts of means to speak to his people but God speaks and the Bible is very clear clearly and objectively through his word the Bible Everything else, every other means is second rate because it is subjective and it shouldn't be raised above any other gift that God gives to his people. That seems to be one of the issues within the church of Corinth. And these teachers in Corinth were judging Paul because he wouldn't emphasise certain gifts. His appearance wasn't obviously impressive. And Paul is simply calling the church at this point to look Right in front of their eyes. Look at the evidence. Look at what is plain. And the evidence was clear for all. Paul was an apostle. He'd seen the Lord Jesus risen and glorified on the road to Damascus. He'd been blinded by the experience. You can read about that in Acts chapter 9. He was therefore an appointed and an empowered apostle to the Gentiles, that is, the non-Jews. See, the facts were... What was plain before their eyes was that Paul had far greater credentials than any of these teachers in Corinth. The church just needed to open their eyes and see what was plain and obvious. Paul belonged to Christ. He doesn't want to boast about his being an apostle. But in verse 8, in a sense, what he does there is he takes a calculated risk to defend his authority. Look at verse 8. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than for tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. See, Paul will boast and he will boast to defend his authority as an apostle of Christ. But note what he is boasting about. He doesn't boast about himself as a person. How skilled he is, the gifts that he has, how impressive he appears. He boasts about himself. Is the ministry of the gospel. What he's been teaching them. And he actually uses something incredibly specific language here in this verse to remind the church in Corinth that he came and he preached them about the new covenant relationship that was available between God and his people in and through Jesus Christ. Because that language of building you up rather than tearing you down comes directly from Jeremiah 31 in the Old Testament. And if you know your Old Testament, and I know many of you do, you'll know exactly what happens in that chapter. That is where God, through his prophet Jeremiah, promises a new covenant relationship with his people. Simply, you see, Paul is boasting only in what God was doing in and through him as he declares the new covenant established in Jesus' blood. See, Paul is saying to the church, Look at the facts. Figure it out. What is plain before your eyes? It might not look impressive. In fact, if you go outside of the Bible and go to some of the Jewish histories, recalling who Paul was, they say some pretty abusive things about him. In his stature, in his appearance, in the way he spoke. There's very little that would kind of think, oh, that's an impressive guy. But he taught the good news about Jesus, who through faith offers forgiveness for sins. The down payment of the Holy Spirit in our hearts is a guarantee of eternal life for Jesus. I don't know if you've been to the British Museum, I'm sure many of you have, and or the VA, someone like that, the Victorian Albert Museum. We were there a few day, um, a few weeks ago with the boys and um, he held those Greco-Roman carvings, you know, very impressive you kind know, of men with muscular bodies, very tall and so on. I wish they had some more clothes on, but you get the idea. <laughs> that is who these Greco-Roman men were who were coming into Corinth. They were impressive. You looked at them all wow, look at you, listen to you. And they looked at Paul and they see he's weak in his body and, uh, and as a speaker. And therefore, they were likely encouraging the church. Oh, don't, look, don't look at him. At us. Paul knew what they were saying. Hence, verse 9 and 10. I, I, I do not want you to seem uh, to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful. But in person, he is unimpressive. And his speaking amounts to nothing. You see, Paul, in his, his love for, his, for this church, had written very, very strong letters. We call it the severe letter. It's mentioned in uh, 2 Corinthians at the beginning. And he'd written these letters to warn them, very strong, forceful letters. But then he met them, and he demonstrated the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. And they are suggesting, these new teachers, that there's an inconsistency. He's strong in his letters, and he's weak in person. And so verse 11, Paul defends himself, showing that there's no lack of consistency between what he says in his letters and who he is in person. Such people should realise that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. The language is incredibly strong. And essentially, Paul is saying, as an apostle of Christ, these rivals should have every reason to be frightened. They should repent and they should turn back to the Lord Jesus Christ, like many of the church have. The problem is with these teachers and these kind of people, you may know people like this too, they're so self-absorbed, they're so full of themselves that they can't and they won't listen to anyone else. They think that they are the centre of the universe, they think they are the complete finished article as Christians. And Paul here is warning them to listen to him in his letter Harsh though the warnings were, because that is infinitely better than Paul coming in person and not displaying gentleness and meekness of Christ, but rather discipline and judgment. We have to remember, and I think these teachers have forgotten, who Paul was. He was an apostle of Christ. He's uniquely appointed and empowered. And he's healed people in Christ's name. But supernatural divine discipline was not beyond his reach. Ananias and Sapphira, for example, fell down dead through the discipline by Peter in Acts 5. Elmas, the pagan sorcerer, was blinded by Paul as Paul denounced him as a liar in Acts 13. The apostles were appointed and empowered, yes, for miraculous work, but also divine acts of judgment. And these leaders, perhaps in Corinth, have perhaps forgotten that. Paul is confronting these teachers, but mainly he is warning the church about these men because they were so much more Corinthian, if you like, than they were Christian. We must be very careful that we do not judge by mere appearances. We must be careful not to value and prioritise the proclamation of... um, We must be careful to, sorry, not, but to value and prioritise the proclamation of the new covenant promises we have in Christ. We must be careful, mustn't we, to, to faithfully and clearly teach the blessings of this life as a Christian. There are many, but we must not promise life will be easy, that life now is, it, it, there's nothing better to come. I saw the other day, um, the biggest selling book, it came out um, On Amazon and uh, New York Times bestseller list as well. The best-selling Christian book over the last 10 years was written by someone called Joel Osteen. The book is called Your Best Life Now. I don't normally call out names. But if you want an example of a Corinthian man, here is one. In that book, there are very, very few Bible verses. Joel Osteen leads the biggest church in America. But his book is about as Corinthian as it can get. And it promises if you have enough faith. You'll be blessed in this life now. With riches and health beyond your wildest dreams. He makes promises he can't keep or substantiate from the Bible. And when questioned by, about suffering. He cannot speak. He would say it's a lack of faith in the person suffering. His teaching is not. Only not from the Bible, it is dangerous, it is deceitful and it is utterly disgusting. But, he's worth over $50 million, he drives to work in a Rolls Royce or a Ferrari, takes his pick. He flies around the world in his private jet, he owns numerous mansions. The slightly amusing irony to all of this is he went to school in a a school in Texas called Humble High School. That is the despicable extreme. It's very attractive, though, isn't it? The world will welcome it because it massages egos, it promises health and wealth, and in reality, it's thoughtless pop psychology wrapped up in pseudo Christian language. But let's not be naive to think that we aren't in danger of being Corinthian ourselves. Paul's boast in verse 8 is all about his ministry of the new covenant established in Jesus Christ. By contrast, the Corinthian teachers boasted about themselves and their comfort. And so where could we possibly be Corinthian in that way? Perhaps if and when we start to value and prioritise church as a gathering of friends. Where we help each other to feel impressive and comfortable. Church should rarely be comfortable, if at all. It should be a place where we come to be challenged and changed by God through his word and by his spirit. It should be a place where we sweat and we pray to bring our friends and our neighbours so they can hear the life-saving good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we value in others their wealth and their appearance and their charisma, over and above their godliness and their persistence to drag their friends, kicking and streaming, to hear the good news of Jesus. Well, if that is us, we are more Corinthian than we are Christian. Before we get to our second point, I want to tell you about my, uh, a friend of my dad, if I may, uh, just briefly. Uh, the second point's very brief, so don't panic. A um, friend of my dad uh, I'm going to call him the Brigadier because that's his title. My dad plays golf every Tuesday and Thursday morning. He's enjoying his retirement a little bit. And he plays with the seniors at his golf club down in Winchester. He goes with his good friend who's well known in the area. My dad's friend's a former Brigadier in the army. Very, very, very wealthy man. Has a huge house. He's a very respected man. He's been honoured by the Queen as well. Just after he retired, the brigadier was invited to a dinner where my dad was explaining the good news about Jesus. Long story short, at the end of the dinner, the brigadier gave his life to Christ. He began reading and praying uh, for his family. His wife became a Christian. She died a few years later. Praise God, she's in glory. His son became a Christian. This man prays for his friends at the golf club every day. I've played a few rounds of golf uh, with this man and he's probably one of the most impressive men I've ever met. A brigadier with a huge house and a huge car. and Respect. And the poshest voice I've ever heard. But do you know the reason he is one of the most impressive men I've ever met? Because I've stood with him on our golf course as he's shared how he's been telling his friends about Jesus. And he's broken down in tears and asked me to pray with him. We must be careful to not value and prioritise what the world does. We must value and prioritise, as Paul did, as the brigadier does, the new covenant that Jesus has made possible. We can know the blessing of eternal relationship with God today, so having warned these leaders in Corinth and warned the church about them, Paul now turns to what he can boast in very quickly to finish. Paul boasts in the Lord. I'm going to run through this last section. So please, again, do not panic. Verse 12. We do not uh, dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. These leaders are prancing around Corinth, showing everyone, oh, look how wise we are. We're amazing. But Paul is showing them that they're boasting about themselves. They write letters of recommendation of, about each other, judging themselves by their own standards. It would be like 11 of us playing football on the fields outside after church and then writing letters about each other. Oh, Sam, he's a great defender. Oh, here's a letter of recommendation about him. Oh, Rodney played wonderful up front. What a head. Brilliant. You know, Anna and lal great solid midfield. we have them. Thank you very much. We're all write letters about each other. Should we go and take them to Chelsea? What a nonsense. These teachers are judging themselves by their own standards. Not biblical standards like allegiance to the gospel, perseverance in their faith, godliness, being prepared to suffer for Christ as they proclaim Christ. Their boasting is just utterly subjective measured by them so paul shows the church uh, the only grounds that they can boast in he says boast in the lord verse 13 we however we will not boast beyond our proper limits but we will confine our boasting to the sphere of service god himself has assigned to us a sphere that also includes you there it's, it's nothing about the person But rather what they proclaim, namely namely the gospel of Jesus. And perhaps Paul is also suggesting that sphere is probably geographical too. That is, He's not gone out of where he ought to be preaching about Jesus. He goes on, verse 14. We're not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we had not come to you. For if we did get as far as with you, uh, with the gospel of Christ... Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of, of work done by others. By implication, what he's saying is that these teachers are going round and they're boasting about stuff which is Paul is responsible for. They're taking all the glory, stealing it. And so Paul closes by showing his heart to them. Verse 15, halfway through. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand. So that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. If we do not want to boast about the work already done in someone else's territory. We know from here and we know from Romans as well at the end. That Paul longed to go west. To the end of the known world. Spain. He wanted to take the gospel to Europe. But he couldn't leave unless the Corinthian church was safe to leave. They come so far. Two Corinthians, we've seen evidence uh, that the church had started to reject these leaders. We see that in chapter 6. We've seen evidence of their generosity to support poorer churches so the gospel could go out. Wonderful. We see that in chapters 8 and 9. And this growth in faith would allow Paul to leave them, taking the gospel to Europe. But he finishes showing the church Who he and they can boast in and why. Verse 17. But let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. See, Paul, for all his credentials, he boasted in the Lord and not about himself. He boasted in what the Lord had done through him. However weak and fragile he was, however much he suffered, he still pointed to the Lord. Anyone can big themselves up. Anyone can, any one of us can get our mates to say nice things about us. Anyone can, with a little bit of money, a little bit of time, we can make ourselves look really impressive and sound really Impressive. But the approved leader before God and his church is the one that speaks very little about himself and faithfully commends and lives out the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And our prayer and song must be like Paul to boast only in the Lord, singing as we've sung earlier, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And as we're about to sing, as a prayer, as we finish. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Just turn to uh, our song after this. Second verse, when I survey the wondrous cross. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save in the death of Christ my God all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice them to his blood. It's all about the Lord. Let's boast in him. Let's pray and then we're going to sing together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example and the warning from Paul. May we be a church, may we be individuals, and together those who do not try to put any attention on ourselves, but rather that all the glory and all the praise might go to the Lord. May we boast in him and him alone. He has done so wonderful things through his Son, the Lord Jesus. May he get all the praise. Amen. Boa oh, so. to the end of our service. Andy, will you be back to mention something? I'll let him put his guitar down. That's only fair. Right. Yeah, so it does bring us to the end of our service. Um, just a reminder, there's uh, a there's a nice,